Testing, testing. Well, good evening. Happy Lord's Day. My name is Reggie Rodriguez, and I'm one of the, see if I get this right, 134 members here? Is that right? Uh, if you would, just as PJ said, please open your Bibles to the book of First Chronicles, chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a uh, pew Bible in front of you. It's a black hardcovered Bible. If you would grab that, and I believe it's on page 366 in the pew Bible. So we're going to take a look at uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 22. Give you a second to get there. And I was assigned verse 19, but we're going to read verses 17 through 19 just to kind of cover the flow of thought. Then David ordered all the leaders of Israel to help his son Solomon. The Lord your God is with you, isn't he? And hasn't he given you rest on every side? For he has handed the land's inhabitants over to me, and the land has been subdued before the Lord and his people. Now determine in your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Get started building the Lord God's sanctuary so that you may bring the ark of the Lord's covenant and the holy articles of God to the temple that is to be built for the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we need you. We need your presence right now, Lord. Father, I just pray that you prepare our hearts to receive your word. Um, pray, Lord, that your spirit would just press this word deep into our hearts, Lord, that it would cause us to have greater affection for you, greater obedience to you, Lord, greater love for our neighbors. We pray, God, that uh, the truth of your word would just... Lead us, Father, to just have a greater affection for you and others. Lord God, help me to be faithful to the text as I bring forth this sermon. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want to give you a little bit of context first um, that I think would be helpful. First and second Chronicles are the final books in the order of the Hebrew Bible. Um, they were two of the last books of the Old Testament to be written, in a sense, First and Second Chronicles unify the whole Old Testament into one coherent story. So the author is unknown. He's referred to as a chronicler. There is some idea given to the possibility of Ezra being the, the writer. It's estimated that it was written about 400 BC or possibly a few decades later. So Chronicles is one of the most neglected books of the Bible. And in fact, when PJ assigned me this passage, I tried to find a sermon series um, from maybe a church that we would normally listen to, their pastors, and I had absolutely no luck. Um, you might try that yourself when you get home and let me know um, if you fared better than I did, but um, it's a difficult task. Chronicles has been described as a summary book of the Old Testament. In its opening verse, we see Adam described in verse 1, and it ends with the death of David. The book is divided in the following way. Chapters 1 through 9 contain genealogical tables. And this is where many folks who are committed to a straight through the Bible plan, Bible reading plan, get derailed. As these same geneal genealogical tables can be very dense reading. Chapter 10 is a transition chapter in preparation for chapters 11 through 29, which contain the reign of David. First Chronicles covers roughly the same material as Second Samuel. But the passage we're looking at tonight does not have a parallel in the Bible. 
We see in chapter 22, because David knew Solomon was young and inexperienced, so we're now looking at chapter 22, um, that he would not be able to undertake this project alone. So David wisely enlisted the loyalty and help of his leaders to transfer their allegiance to Solomon, who would carry out the divine will and the last wishes of his father. Although David was prevented from taking part in the actual construction of the temple, think back to 2 Samuel 7 and the Davidic covenant where God essentially tells David, you said you wanted to build a house for me, well, I'm gonna build a house for you. I'm gonna build a dynasty through you. We see him standing alongside Solomon in this chapter as the one who provides the materials, he provides the personnel, and the conditions essential for the task. So chapter 22 has a form of a private commissioning of Solomon, while chapters 28 and 29 include a public commissioning in the sight of all Israel. David and Solomon's reigns are presented as a complementary unit, both being essential for the fulfillment of the task what David begins, Solomon completes. The books also provide examples of the danger of sin and its consequences. Most of all, they point God's people to the importance of repentance and reform, turning away from our sin and turning toward God in order to receive his forgiveness and blessing. The people of Israel were stubborn in their sin. They did not listen to God or his prophets, despite repeated calls to turn back to their God. Although God disciplined them with affliction for their sin, they still did not repent. In this way, the chronicler warns his readers to be quick to repent. The chronicler also points his readers toward the future, toward the hope of God's promise. The two cornerstone institutions of the people of Israel, the Davidic monarchy and the temple, are both founded upon God's unbreakable promise. Despite the obstacles in their way, the people can have confidence that God will keep his word to Israel, and this knowledge should give them confidence to engage joyfully in the work of God's kingdom. If you're not a Christian tonight, the message for you is this. God is holy and perfect. He created us as the creator, and as the creator, he has the right to tell us how to live. Mankind is both sinful and rebellious. Our rebellion has put us at enmity with a holy God. And because of this, we have a wrong relationship with God. And you could say that God has a beef with humanity. God will not leave the guilty unpunished. The penalty for our sin is both physical and spiritual death. Our final destiny is eternal active judgment in hell. We have a sin debt that we cannot pay. No manner of good works or deeds will suffice. But the good news is this, Jesus Christ became incarnate. God became a man. He added humanity to his deity. He lived a perfect life. Jesus died a cruel death on the cross to pay for our sin penalty. And then he rose from the dead, assuring us that God's wrath was satisfied. We need to admit that we are sinners in need of a savior and turn away from our sin. That's repentance and trust in Jesus and nothing else to save us from sin and the coming judgment. Lean the hopes of your soul on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Salvation is a posture of repentance and faith that you begin in a moment and maintain for the rest of your life. 
But let's take a look at our passage tonight, and that is uh, verse 19. And I'm really going to narrow our focus to the first part of verse 19. So that's first, that's verse 19a, if you will. And that is to set your mind and your heart to seek Yahweh, your Elohim. This is our meditation tonight. The main idea is this. The heart is the rudder of the soul. Charles Spurgeon once said, the heart is the rudder of the soul. Until the Lord take it in his hand, we steer in a false and foul way. O Lord, thou who did once make me, be pleased to make me new, and in my most secret parts renew me. So how are we then to seek Yahweh? And I want to develop two points into this regard about how we are to seek Yahweh. The first one is that we are to seek him continually. And the second is that we are to seek him with an undivided heart. I want to start off by developing heart as it's described in the Bible. In Chronicles, as elsewhere in the scriptures, the terms heart, soul, and mind refer to the thoughts and motivations of people. All of the deeper dynamics of the inner person may be summed up as the heart, soul, or mind. For this reason, these terms are largely interchangeable. The human heart is the center of all internal functioning, beliefs, motives, thoughts, emotions, affections, desires, volition, etc. We must understand that the human heart is active, not passive. So our first point, I want to flesh out, seek him continually. I'm going to ask you, if you will, to, and this is the only cross-reference we're going to go to, if you'll go to the middle of your Bible, to the book of Psalms, chapter 105, verse 4. And if you have a pew Bible, that should be on page 529. And the verse, I'll give you a second to get there. Psalm 105, verse 4. The CSB says, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. I really like the NASB here. The NASB says, seek Yahweh and his strength. Seek his face continually. To seek the Lord is to seek his presence. Literally, we are to seek his face. To be before his face is to be in his presence. In this passage, the people are in exile. They've been driven out of the land of promise. They have been taken captive by their enemies, and the circumstances of their life are not what they would want them to be. They're suffering. It may even look to them like the promises of God aren't going to come to pass. In your life, if your circumstances aren't what you hoped, if you aren't seeing the fruit you'd like to see, if you've had a bad week or you're dreading this upcoming week or you're in a bad season right now, the psalmist is stating here, seek Yahweh and his strength, seek his face continuously. So a question, rhetorical question, do we really need to seek the Lord continuously? 
And we do. Because the conscious, trusted presence of God is not our constant experience. We all have moments, days, and even seasons when we are neglectful of God, where we lack intentionality in our seeking. And let's be honest, we like to coast. And for many of us, this is a preferred mode. And then we have distractions, things that tend to obscure God's presence. As PJ discussed this morning, our screens, streaming services, YouTube videos, the Major League Baseball app, 162 games of Dodger baseball. They've all provided an avenue, a super highway, if you will, for time wasting and switching off our minds. So we need a strategy. So what I'm gonna discuss next is more of a wisdom issue. It's not a thus saith the Lord. But I wanna first start off with a quote from George Mueller in his autobiography. And George Mueller said these things. He says, I want to encourage all believers to get into the habit of rising early to meet with God. Someone may ask, but why should I rise early? To remain too long in bed is a waste of time. A man's time and all he has is to be used for the Lord. Anyone who spends one, two, or three hours in prayer and meditation before breakfast will soon discover the beneficial effect early rising has on the outward and inward man. Trust in the Lord for help. You will honor him if you expect help from him in this matter. Pray for help, expect help, and you will have it. In addition to this, go to bed early. If you stay up late, you cannot rise early. Let no pressure of engagements keep you from going habitually early to bed. If you fail in this, you neither can nor should get up early because your body requires rest. Rise at once when you are awake. Remain not a minute longer in bed. This was before the snooze alarm, right? <laughs> or else you are likely to fall asleep again. Do not be discouraged by feeling drowsy and tired from rising early. This will soon wear off. After a few days, you will feel stronger and fresher than when you used to lie an hour or two longer than you needed. Always allow yourself the same hours for sleep. Make no change except on account of sickness. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with George Mueller, he cared for over 10,000 orphans in Bristol, England. He never made appeals and never asked for money. He trusted that God would provide all that he needed for the kids under his care. George died a poor man in 1898, as he never set aside any of the money donated for savings, even when the people given the money specifically requested that he use it for himself. He did not believe he should use any of the money for reserves. In regard to reserves, he specifically stated, how could I pray if I had reserves? George also stated, when money is sent to me for my own use, I pass it on to God. George began evangelistic preaching at the age of 70 years old. He was said to have continued his evangelistic tours until the age of 90, traveling the world and reaching over 3 million people in his lifetime. For me personally, intentionality can be 
effective method for continuously seeking God. I need a roadmap for my day. I like to use things like time blocking to keep myself on track because I find that the absence of structure causes me to be very inefficient. And to give you an example that is closer to home here, I don't know if you guys are aware, but about 14 of us BBCers have expressed interest in running in a, in a half marathon uh, on Memorial Day. At least that's how many people express interest over email. That's 56 days from today. Now let's say I plan to run the half marathon, which I do, but I have not trained at all. Well, that day is probably not gonna go very well for me. But if I pick a schedule, I log my miles and I stay faithful to that plan, come race day, it will be an exhilarating day. At work, I have to write a business plan in which I specifically will list the accounts that I'm gonna call on, how often I'm gonna call on them, what my objectives are, and then what the fruit of those efforts will be. And that has to be done on a quarterly basis, not leaving it to chance. We as a church, I've heard us talk about date nights and weekly marriage meetings, that's intentionality. Structure works for people like me. Now let's look at point two. Seek him with an undivided heart. Setting your mind and your heart to seek Yahweh, as well as, the, as well as the passage that PJ gave us this morning, Colossians 3, 1 through 4, set your mind on things above, can be facilitated through the reading of scripture. But I believe in addition to reading, we also need to meditate. Joshua 1, 8, Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, Psalm 119, 97, those are all passages that clearly indicate the need for meditation. A typical Bible reading plan calls for us to read big, large chunks, usually about three chapters a day to get through the entire Bible in a year. But meditation calls for us to study small, to narrow the focus to perhaps a sentence or even a word. I recently read in a Desiring God article that if in typical Bible reading, we walk down the hallway of a passage, in meditation, we open doors and explore rooms. Meditation can be defined as deep thinking on the truths and spiritual realities revealed in scripture or upon life from a scriptural perspective for the purposes of understanding, application, and prayer. So I'll give you an analogy, a cup of tea. In this analogy, your mind is the cup of hot water and the tea bag represents your intake of scripture. Hearing God's word is like one dip of the tea bag into the cup. Some of the tea's flavor is absorbed by the water, but not as much as would occur with a more thorough soaking of the bag. Reading, studying, and memorizing God's word are like additional plunges of the tea bag into the cup. The more frequently the tea enters the water, the more permeating its effect. Meditation, however, is like immersing the bag completely and letting it steep until all the rich tea flavor has been extracted and the hot water is thoroughly tinted reddish brown. Meditation on scripture is letting the Bible brew in the brain. Therefore, we might say that as the tea colors the water, 
Meditation likewise colors our thinking. When we meditate on scripture, it colors our thinking about God, about God's ways and his world and about ourselves. We need to read, meditate, and even memorize scripture. If you're at all like me, you leave your morning time with God, sincerely desiring to go on thinking of things above in the spare moments of your day. But then you regularly fill every spare moment with something else. In the car, you turn on sports talk radio, news, or maybe traffic updates. In line at the store, you check your email. This morning, we learned that we check our phones every, how often, PJ? How many? 58 times a day. Waiting for a friend, you play a game on your phone. Lying in bed, you scroll through social media. None of these activities are necessarily bad, but how often are they the reflex of a mind addicted to distraction? And what if we resolve to spend at least some of the day's silences recalling what we read that morning, rehearsing a memorized passage, or praying to our Father in heaven? In closing, I'd like you to encourage you to set your mind and your heart to seek Yahweh, your Elohim, by continually seeking his face and seeking him with an undivided heart. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be in your word, Lord. Your word is perfect. Uh, your spirit works through your word, Lord. When we read your word, you are speaking to us. And we just pray, God, that we would leave here tonight, Lord, with uh, just a stronger affection for you and your word. I pray, God, that, um, that our affection would just increase as we, we go on throughout the week, that we take time to read scripture with others, that we uh, place the same importance on scripture, Lord, as you want for us to place on it. And I pray, God, that we would glorify you through our obedience, and we ask um, that you be glorified during this time in Jesus' name. Amen.